The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. So I'm by nature a pretty skeptical uh, kind of, I say kind of critical guy, critical guy. Um, and it kind of gets me in trouble sometimes, especially uh, at home with the wifey, because uh, she'll tell me a fact, she'll tell me something, and I won't say I don't trust her, uh, because I do trust her, but, but, but not, it's not just her. When other people tell me like facts and figures, like I just want to see for myself. And so I think it's amazing to live in the internet age so I can Google it and we know everything on Google is true. And so I get on there and start to research stuff. I'm a researcher by trade. I like to read by trade. I like, well, I guess I am. I searched titles for a living. And I just love to like research and find out like what's going on here. I, I love to do that. Uh, yesterday when I was supposed to be doing some sermon prep, um, a, a email came across my little screen, and of course, it looked important, so I clicked it. Um, and uh, it was this site uh, called Quora. Anybody heard of Quora? Anyway, it's where it's like an exchange of information. And it, well, the question was, what's an unbelievable fact that is, act, that is true? And this guy told a story about a city in Pennsylvania called, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing this correctly, Centralia. Anybody heard of Centralia, Pennsylvania? So underneath, so you, you guys that are like me, you're going to like Google this right now or as soon as you get out there, you're like, is, is he telling us the truth? So underneath Centralia, Pennsylvania, there is a fire that is burning underground out of control and has been burning for 50 years. You get your head around that? An uncontrollable fire is burning underground below Centralia, Pennsylvania, has been burning for 50 years, and they estimate will burn for another two to 300 years. Does that sound true? It's absolutely true. So what happened was that there's a giant coal mine underneath the grounds. They were going to do some uh, like cleaning up of the landfill one day, and there was a hole in the ground. They were burning up the landfill in 1962, and somehow something happened. They don't know what happened, but fire got down into the shaft underneath, and it's been burning out of control for 50 years. It's going to burn another 200, 300 years. So I read that fact on this email, and I didn't trust that, and I wanted to go and research and see, is that absolutely true? And it's absolutely true. There's pictures online, there's people that have visited, because it sounds unbelievable. You know, just because something's unbelievable doesn't mean that it's not true. And we, as Christians, we believe a pretty unbelievable story. I mean, let's, let's own this. Let's own the elephant in the room as Christians. Uh, let's just say it out loud and, and just see how this would sound to somebody coming from the outside. So we believe that God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. We believe that, that into this mess of humanity that we fell away from him, that God came in the form of a man and he was born, this man was born to a virgin. You guys tracking me so far? A man was born of a virgin. He grew up. He happened to be 100% God, 100% man at the same time. He lived a perfect life. He died a substitutionary death for your and my sin to draw us back to God. He was in the tomb, and on the third day, he rose again. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father, and he's coming back. And then he's coming back. The Bible says something about like he's riding on the back of a white horse, and there's a sword coming out of his mouth. That's own that. That's a pretty unbelievable kind of kind of crazy story that we believe as Christians. Let's just own that. 
What we're celebrating this morning that Jesus rose from the dead. If you've been in church for a long time, it sounds like just normal talk to you. But if, you're, if you stop and listen for a moment, it is an unbelievable kind of crazy story. And sometimes if you're coming in from the outside, it's easy to get the feeling that like, if I'm going to be a Christian, what I'm expected to do is take a blind step of faith to believe a crazy story. And, and I just can't do that. You ever felt that way? You don't have to nod your head, but maybe you felt that way. This is a crazy story. I'm supposed to believe this thing that Christians, so you ever think about Christians that they're either people who grew up that way and so it sounds normal to them, or they are like maybe weak-minded, weak-willed kind of people that happen to believe this nice fable. It makes them feel better about themselves. But how can I be a Christian because I can't get beyond the fact that this is a crazy story? How do I get there? Well, if you feel that way, you're not alone. Because in Christianity, there's the possibility of doubt. There's a place for doubt. In fact, if you are a doubter, you join a long line of doubters. Let's look at the the text this morning at Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. Um, I'll throw this out um, for you as well, just kind of a a bonus deal. We're only going to deal with verses 1 through 8 because depending on what Bible you have, you'll probably see, uh, you might see a little message after verse 8 that says some of the earliest manuscripts don't include uh, verses 9 through verses 20. Um, And that's because almost universally we think that those were this part this is one of the most controversial sections of the whole Bible. We think uh, those, those verses were added later on. Not much later on, but later on enough that it wasn't a, the part of the original book of Mark. So we're only going to deal with verses 1 through 8 this morning. Um, I'm going to read. Uh, so, so oh, by the way, Jesus, if you're if you, coming in late on the story, Jesus was crucified and he's in the tomb. <laughs> and the cap is on my water. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so they might go and anoint him. That's Jesus. And very early on, the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw this, you see, because the stone was very large. A few women would not have been able to do it. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. Uh, That word there is uh, Greek for they pooped in their pants. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. Because see, he was an angel, that's what I'm saying. They, you know, that it, was, it, was, it was very, it, that, 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 actually it is a very, very strong word. It says they were, they were shocked. They were in utter disbelief. They, they, were, they were undone. You, he said, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. That's one of the best sentences in the entire Bible, by the way. Has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, and just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. 
And they said, this is crazy, isn't it? And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. You see, in the very day, the very morning when he had risen and the women who were believers in him, who loved him, who had walked with him, who had heard him say, I'm going to die, and on the third day I'm going to be raised again. Whenever they come to the tomb, they see that it's empty, and they meet the angel. They're so freaked out and so afraid. They leave, and, he's, and they don't tell anybody. So if you have doubts, you join a long line of doubters. In fact, in this section, the, the angel says to, him, says to them, go and tell the disciples and who? And Peter, why do they single out Peter? Because he had denied him three times. Peter, I mean, they had all kind of left and fled him. They had hidden from him when the chips were down, when Jesus really needed somebody, a shoulder to cry on. They were falling asleep in the garden. Whenever the chips were down and they had arrested him, they were all dispersed. But Peter went three steps further and he denied that he even knew. He didn't just go into hiding. He followed along when a little maid was asking him, aren't you one of those that are following him? He denied him not once, not twice, but three times. So Peter's probably dealing with this like guilt and regret, thinking that, man, I told him when the chips were down I was going to be there, and if everybody else fled, I would be there, and yet I wasn't. And he's dealing with this, and he tells the ladies that he knows. As the angel tells them, go and tell everybody, he knows they're going to flee, and they're going to be afraid, and they're not going to tell people because they're afraid. But he tells them, go and tell the disciples and Peter. But Peter wasn't the only doubter. Jesus appears to, uh, to these women. He has a couple more appearances. He appears to finally, he, as, as uh, Jamin said, he appears to two of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Then finally he appears to the disciples who are gathered in the upper room, except one of them is missing. You guys know who it is? Thomas. Thomas is missing. I don't know what he was doing. He is out running errands. They send him out to do something. He had to get an oil change. I don't know what he was doing. I guess not oil change. You got to get the camel. I don't know. Something, you know, get a, I think maybe he's putting a list on his camel and uh, something like that. I don't, I don't know. And so he was out doing that. He wasn't there. He comes back. Can you imagine like, you like, have you ever like missed something? Like you're like, you're like, you, you come in and you walk into the room and a, a joke has just happened and you're like, oh, I missed it. That sounded very funny. They try to tell you again and it's just not as funny. Do you imagine what it was like to walk into a room and they're saying, we saw Jesus. He is alive. He came and goes, oh, I missed it. And it says that he didn't believe them. All the other boys that had been living with Jesus for three years, sharing life together, they're looking at Thomas saying, we saw him, he was here. And Thomas was like, y'all all crazy. Y'all on something? Y'all looking a little something, something? Have a little, is it 420? I don't know what is going on in here, but you guys are crazy. You have missed something. I'm not going to believe. And he tells them, he says, I'm not going to believe unless I stick my finger in the holes in his hands or stick my hand in the hole in his side. Because see, when they killed him, they didn't just hang him. They didn't just put the nails through his wrist. They didn't just put the nails through his feet at the end after he had died. In order to prove it, they had stuck a spear in his side. And he said, I want to stick my hand in there to prove it. When Jesus appeared again, they were all there. He looks at Thomas and says, did he cuss him out? 
You tell him to leave. You don't deserve to be a part of this band of believers anymore. What's he say? Here you go. Put your finger in there. Here you go. Stick your hand in there. Isn't that cool? Isn't that crazy? That's how they killed me. Now I'm alive. Stick your hand in there. He didn't kick him out because he doubted. He extended him grace. See, Jesus is gracious to doubters. There's room for doubt in the Christian faith, and there's room for doubt here. If you're here today and you don't know where you stand with everything, there is room for you to be here before you believe, to belong before you believe as you try to figure it all out because that's the way Jesus is. Nowhere in the Bible are we commanded to step out in blind faith as if we're believing a myth. Nowhere. If you think Christianity is stepping out on blind faith, it's not blind faith. To step out in faith, absolutely, but not blind faith. It's not some myth that you're believing. It's true. It may be unbelievable, but that doesn't make it untrue. That is a cute sneeze, Kate. That is the cutest sneeze. Because see, not only is there a possibility for doubt in our faith, there is proof for our doubt. I'm going to run through a list here. That was weird. I'm going to run through a list here of some things um, as we're talking about the fact that it's, we're not just believing it's blindly in some fable and some myth. The story that we just read, Mark, is probably the earliest gospel we have the Bible that tells us in the Old Testament it predicts Jesus' coming and it predicts the way he would die. It predicts the way that he would rise again. It even says that he's going he to be put in a rich man's tomb, in a borrowed tomb. Uh, think, about that, th- think about that, by the way. I didn't mention that last week in his death and his burial. I, just, I was just thinking about this last week. Like Jesus came as a baby and he was wrapped in swaddling clothes and, lied and laid in a borrowed manger. And whenever he died, he was wrapped in cloths and laid in a borrowed tomb. Isn't that kind of interesting? I think it's free out of there. But the account of the, the accounts that we have in the Old Testament that predicts the coming, and Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all the way to Revelation, the, book, the books of the Bible, it is the most documented book that we have in existence. There are, um, the Greek text of the, the New Testament, we have manuscripts, uh, and I feel silly saying this because Cam in the back is kind of a, a scholar, um, but we have manuscripts that are dated from A.D. 135 all the way to about A.D. 1200 at the latest. There's at least, or there's actually over 5,000 manuscripts that exist. Some of them are small as a postage stamp, and some of them contain the whole thing, and they all agree. Like there's a few like things like this last part of Mark, but it's amazing how much the manuscripts agree from one to the other. Over five thousand. Over five thousand. The four Gospels emphasize the empty tomb, but they also give additional details. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, it seems to be like a problem. They don't, the, the story that we just read about the resurrection isn't exactly the same in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So it seems like that might be a problem, but it's not because if, you, if we all saw a story and we wanted to like uh, 
have some collusion. We wanted to like have like a conspiracy. Like we would all get on the same page and make sure we said the exact same story every single time. You guys did that when you were a kid? Like the th- three, three of you kids went and did something wrong and you said like, all right, what's our story when we get back to the parents? And you would, you would rehearse it exactly verbatim. You'd had the script down. It doesn't read like that. It reads like if Dale saw something and if Kramer saw something and Jonathan saw something and I saw something, we would all tell the story. We might tell it a little bit differently, but we all saw the same thing. And we're giving eyewitness accounts of what actually happened. There's some common objections to the, prop, to the issue of the resurrection. Some people think that uh, maybe the ladies that we just read about came to the wrong tomb. So they showed up to a tomb that was empty, which is kind of weird uh, to kind of as a well, kind of a weird theory to base the fact that the resurrection didn't happen on because uh, it already told us that the same women who went and saw him in the morning were the ones that saw where he was laid before, and the fact that he like they showed up and like and angels were there, you know. So it kind of it kind of it kind of picks you out from the other tombs in the cemetery when there are angels hanging around your tomb. And if, and if it was the wrong tomb, don't you think like the Jewish authorities at the time, the Roman authorities would have said, hey, you guys are at 222A, but it's really 222B and C, he's still in here, but nobody ever stepped forward and said, hey, you were at the wrong tomb. They were quiet. And some people said he might have heard like maybe the disciples stole the body because Jesus had, had predicted his death would happen and that he would rise again. So maybe the disciples went and stole the body, but it doesn't really address the issue that uh, another account that we, that, you read about, it says that they were, there were actually guards posted outside the tomb because Jesus, people knew that Jesus had predicted that he would rise again. And they didn't want any rumors to happen, anything like this to happen, and so they set the guards there. Not only that, but when they would roll the tomb in front of, in front of the grave, they would actually seal the tomb so you could tell if the seal had been broken. The Roman guard and the seal, there's really no answer. Uh, some people think that maybe Jesus actually didn't die on the cross. Maybe he just passed out or just appeared to be dead or the, the, the word is swoon. This is what um, a lot of people believe. This is what the, uh, the Muslim Quran teaches as fact, that uh, that's what happened. But it doesn't really account for several things. One is like these, the Romans were expert executioners. They knew how to do this. And the, and the cross was the most extreme form of execution that the Romans had. They used it only in the most extreme cases in order to, make, to really prove like, hey, we're really, really serious about this. And it doesn't really answer the fact that, that they had to report to Pilate that he was dead and that not only that they in order to make sure that he actually was dead they stuck a spear in his side and it says that when it came out it says that blood and water flowed have you read that account or 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 whatever that's that's because he had been dead so long that the blood had started to coagulate and separate and so that's we know that he wasn't he didn't just die he didn't die when they stuck the spear in he'd already been dead and actually um anyway that's that's a cool story um but we won't get on that rabbit trail uh, some people think that Jesus' followers hallucinated his resurrection. But the problem is, if you, if you were to stick like 10 people in a room and you give them all some you know, mind-altering drug, they don't come out having the same experience. They come out having like, you know, hey, I tasted color. And the other guy is like, a dog talked to me. And they, they don't all come out having the same story. But all the disciples... All the believers 
came out having the same story that Jesus had died. And then another objection is that, um, well, Jesus resurrected, but it was a, a spiritual resurrection, not a physical resurrection. Well, the problem is if it was a spiritual resurrection, when they walk into the tomb and he says, hey, he was crucified, he was dead, but he is risen. And he says, look over where he was laid. It's empty. The tomb was empty. Now look, the, 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 the fact that the tomb was empty doesn't prove that Jesus was raised again. No more than the fact that you step outside on the few spring days that we've had in the past couple weeks and you feel the sun shining on your face. It doesn't prove that the sun is there. It's just an effect that, it's, that it happened. The fact that this morning when I was setting up the signs, it started raining and I got wet and I felt the rain. That moment didn't prove that it was raining. It just was an effect that it was raining because it was true. So what are some proofs of the resurrection? Or do we just step out in blind faith? Well, first of all, we know that Jesus foretold of his death and resurrection, which, by the way, is a pretty gutsy thing to do. It's one thing to be able to know that, hey, I'm cruising down, I'm, I'm getting some enemies, I'm gonna die. It's a whole other thing to say, hey, I'm gonna be killed, and on the third day, I'm gonna rise again. He predicted it. Another proof is that, as we already mentioned, that Jesus died. He predicted his death. He died. He was hung on the cross. He breathed his last. They stuck a spear in him. They accepted him as dead. They pulled him down. They gave his body and threw it in a grave. Another proof is that the tomb was empty. The Jewish opposition never uh, denied that the tomb was empty. They never had a story. They never said, hey, you guys, it, was, it, it never was empty. We hid the body or you stole the body and we found it. The tomb was empty. Nobody ever had an answer for that. And then Jesus appeared to the disciples physically in Matthew 28, 9 and Luke 24, 30. And that Luke 24, 30 actually broke bread and gave it to them. In Luke 24, 39, he told them to touch and see, for the spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. In verse 43, it says they, they gave him fish and he took it and ate it before them. He wasn't just a spirit like floating around like Casper or something. He was a physical man that came in, sat down with them, which by the way has some pretty cool extraordinary powers because he walked through walls. It was pretty cool, pretty cool power to have, by the way. Walked through walls, had a physical body, sat down with them, ate the fish with them. That's a pretty cool story. He was real. John 20, 27, as we already mentioned, he told Thomas, put your finger here, put your hand here, place it in my side. Another proof, like just, it doesn't prove that he rose any more than anything else, but it's, a, it's an effect of the, of the truth, is that Jesus' own family worshiped him. How many people in here have brothers and sisters? How many people have moms and dads? That's everybody, by the way. Raise your hand. Mom. So um, who knows your faults and foibles better than your brother and sister. Anybody like think like your brother and sister, like, like some people say, oh, he, she worships him. Like anybody actually think that your brother and sister worships you? They know. You know they've seen you. They've seen you naked. <laughs> they, they, they've, seen, they've seen you mess up. They've seen you when you wake up and bedhead and everything. They know you with a bad attitude. They know the whole deal. Jesus' own brothers and sisters and his mom, they worshiped him as God. It didn't start out that way. 
in, in uh, Mark chapter 3, verse 21, they, his own family said, get him out of here because he's out of his mind. His brothers and sisters said that about Jesus. Get him out of here for he's out of his mind. John chapter 7, also his brothers didn't believe him. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 33 through 58, Jesus is in his hometown of Nazareth and he's, they reject him. I'm from Conway. I tell you, if I roll up in Conway and say, hey guys, I'm the son of God, they will laugh me out of town. They know, they've seen me. They're not buying it a bit. And so beforehand, nothing. His family thinks he's crazy. His, his own hometown won't accept him. But then in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, we read about how Jesus appeared to James, which is his brother, his half-brother. And James went on to be an early church leader, pastoring the church in Jerusalem. He authored a New Testament epistle, and he died a martyr's death. Would you die a martyr's death for proclaiming that your own brother was, was the Lord? And was risen. The book of Jude is written by another half brother of Jesus. In Acts chapter one, we we see that the disciples, after Jesus has risen again, they're devoting themselves to prayer, and Mary, his own mother, is there. She's praying. Her son is God, and has risen again. Another thing that's hard to understand if Jesus actually wasn't raised again, if he wasn't resurrected, is that. So we see how his disciples were transformed. What were his disciples like? We just were talking about it. They were doubters. They left him. They never really got it. They were always messing up. They were always fighting, infighting with each other, deciding who was going to be greater, who was going to have the most prominence. When the chips were down, they ran away. But what happens after the resurrection? All of a sudden, we see something change. The disciples are bold. They start to scatter uh, later on throughout the whole world, proclaiming that he has risen boldly, and they give their lives for him. A man they had lived with, with, like a college buddy, would you give your life declaring that your college buddy was Lord, that he was God, and that he had died and he had risen again if it actually hadn't happened? And they all were changed and transformed, sacrificing their life and counting it joy. We read in Acts that they came and beat them, and they, after they were left the beating and being in prison, they said they counted it joy and they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ. How do we account for that? Going from hiding in a locked room to boldly declaring that Jesus Christ is the risen Lord to the point that they're boiled in oil, they are hung upside down, their heads are chopped off. It's hard to account for. And then we see how these Jews who were devout Jews, the Jews that were following Jesus were devout Jews. They knew only, there's only one God. They were, that was the, the very cornerstone of the Jewish faith. They worshiped on Saturday. They had all kinds of rites and rules. And all of a sudden we see a group of devout Jews totally change the way they observe. They even, it's, it's so drastic, they move their day of worship from Saturday to Sunday to celebrate because that's the day that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And then we see how the early church preached the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That was their message that they scattered throughout the whole world preaching that Jesus Christ was Lord and he had risen. In fact, in 12 of the 28 chapters in the book of Acts, we see them preaching and proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ. These are people that had walked with him. So there's a possibility for doubt in our faith. There's proof for our doubt in faith. 
But here's the question. Here's the question that I think should stand before us this morning. What was it that made the disciples believe? Was it his appearing to them? If so, how can we believe if we've never seen? So if the proof for them was that he actually showed up in front of them and told them, you can see, I'm physical, I'll, I'll eat, you can, you can touch me, you can stick your finger in the hole, how can we believe if he hasn't done that? If he's not going to do that this morning, how can we believe? How can we? The answer is that the glorious truth of Jesus' death and resurrection as laid out in the Bible, is self-authenticating. The glorious truth of Jesus' death and resurrection as laid out in the Bible is self-authenticating. It proves, it proves itself to us in much the same way that we all know what the color blue is. How do we prove what the color blue is? If I were to stick different colored tiles up here, if we were to look at this and I asked you guys privately, each one, unless you're colorblind, if I were to ask you what is the background of this slide, you could all tell me what color it is. How do you know that? It's the same way that we all know what the color blue is, the color green is. It's the same way that we all know that a sunrise over the ocean is beautiful. Does somebody have to tell you that? Somebody have to teach you, take you out there, show you the sunrise or the ocean and say, this is beautiful? It's self-authenticating to you. It's the same way that you and I know that fire is hot, that garbage is stinky, and that baseball is boring. It all proves itself to us on its own. It communi something communicates these truths to us sensibly. I see it, I taste it, I touch it, I smell it, and I know that to be true. I don't have to teach my kids that, that garbage stinks. I don't have to teach my kids that that. That, uh, that, that fried chicken is awesome. It just is self-authenticating to you. It proves itself. It doesn't make it true, but it proves itself to you because something communicates that to you and me sensibly. And in this case, it's the Holy Spirit who was sent to us after Jesus ascended to heaven who communicates that truth to us. Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 16 that it's far better for him to go than for him to stay because if he goes, he would send the helper, he would send the Holy Spirit, that it was the job of the Holy Spirit. Well, I'll read it real quick. John chapter 16 uh, verse 7 through 14. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, this is what he's, what he's, he's explaining, this, that how he communicates it sensibly to us. Concerning sin... And righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this, the ruler of this world is judged. 
Verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. What he's saying is that the problem with you and I, if we don't believe, if we're doubting, and by the way, there's a space for doubts, as we said. But the problem isn't that there aren't enough proofs or that we weren't raised to believe this. The problem is that you can't see or hear or taste or touch or smell clearly and correctly until the Holy Spirit of God breathes upon your soul. It's like if you were... It's like if you couldn't taste and all of a sudden somebody gives you the ability to taste. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And he turns the story, the gruesome story that we talked about last week, the gruesome, ugly, bloody story of Jesus and the unbelievable story of his resurrection into something beautiful and amazing. And it still may sound unbelievable, but it becomes true and precious and lovely and joyous to you. And so what you need this morning, wherever you and I are, if you're a doubter here today, if you're a believer who doubts, if you're a believer who believes, if you're a doubter who doubts he's believing, wherever you fall in the mix, in the ratio, in the, in the scale, wherever you fall in there, What you and I need this morning is the Holy Spirit to breathe upon us. I'll read this section and we'll be done. 2 Corinthians, it should be on the screen. Um, I say that confidently. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Verse six, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus, Jesus Christ. You know what that's saying? And I use this analogy a lot, I stole it from Jonathan Edwards, but he's saying you can't really appreciate the way honey tastes. Everybody around you may say it's sweet. You can't really appreciate that my mom makes amazing fried chicken. I may tell you that. My sisters may tell you that. But you really can't appreciate that until you taste it for yourself. And what you and I need this morning is for the Holy Spirit of God to open our eyes to see The gospel is the good news of the glory of God. That's whenever he goes public with his beauty and his perfections. The gospel, the glory of God as shown to us in the face of Jesus Christ. The Jesus who is no longer dead, who is raised. At the empty tomb, Jesus exchanges our unbelief for belief. But not because the tomb is empty because he is real. 
There's a possibility for our doubt. There are proofs for our doubt. The thing that really changes the whole story that makes Christianity different than any other story is that there's a person for our doubt. That's the Jesus Christ who we're celebrating this morning, our risen Lord. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Father, I pray that you would, um, as we continue the service, as we prepare our hearts for uh, communion to remember the last meal that you had with your disciples when you were showcasing what you would do on the cross for us, that your body would be broken, that your blood would be shed. As we celebrate that, God, we celebrate it knowing that it's, it's showcasing us, it's that that one who was broken is risen again. And because of that, we can be confident that he is coming back. You are coming back to take all that is broken and make it right again. There is healing in you. There is wholeness in you. There is hope in you. There is, there is faith in you for all of us, wherever we are today. We are hurting. We're doubting. We're hopeless. There's hope and there's faith for us today. Make it real to us. Shine in our hearts the realness of the glory that's found in your face. May not just remember an empty tomb, but maybe worship and experience a risen Lord. And in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.